0: What we're seeing more of is less and less, if any, reps and warranties from sellers. They're basically relying or telling the buyer to rely on their due diligence.
1: Welcome to the MBBI Trends and M&A Podcast. I'm Jeff Szemoski with Chartist Group, Business Owner Financial Services, your host for today's podcast. And today's guest is Keith Zerman, attorney at Kelleher Holland Attorneys at Law. Kelleher Holland is currently a gold sponsor of MBBI Illinois Chapter and has been a longtime partner of MBBI. Thank you and welcome, Keith.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it for myself and on behalf of the firm.
1: Why not you take a minute to introduce yourself in Kelleher Holland?
0: Um, Keith Zerman. I am the co-chair of the corporate department here at Kelleher Holland. The corporate department encompasses it's kind of a an umbrella uh, designation and includes what we would consider typical corporate work, which is... Uh, mergers, acquisitions, buy-sells, forming entities, general counseling, but we also include under our umbrella commercial real estate, residential real estate, as well as employment matters. Yeah,
1: because all those things pretty much are intertwined with running a company. I mean, you have to have a place to work, you got the real estate, you got the people, it all makes sense.
0: Yeah, we're a full-service firm. We have a very robust uh, litigation department. The firm was initially founded as a high-net-worth estate planning firm and has branched out from there. We still remember that core. And one of the nice, unique things about our firm is the interplay between the estate planning and the corporate. You can't do a deal unless you know how it affects personally the owners of those businesses. And most of our clients, um, their biggest asset or one of their biggest assets is the businesses that they own and have run for years. Yeah. That's great perspective. So, yeah, I think it's a little different. We're not just doing the deal, but before we close a deal, I'll talk to one of my partners in the estate planning department and say, hey, where does this go? Where's the money need to go? Who's the owner? How is this going to fit into their overall plan? So we really take a holistic view.
1: Which I know is a great segue into the topic that we're going to talk about today, because one of the main elements in what you're talking about in mergers and acquisitions is the money. Like how much money, what's the value, what did it transact for? It's all about the dollars. So I'm sure you'll agree that a significant part of that is the documentation. And a significant part of, the, of that documentation where the risk lies essentially is the representations and warranties.
0: Absolutely. I would say 80% of what a lawyer does in a merger and acquisition transaction revolves around two, two areas, the reps and warranties. And the indemnification provisions, they kind of go hand in hand because if you have a breach of a rep, how does that get indemnified by the seller? And the buyer wants to know that they're not hanging out there.
1: And I know just like most m and transactions, they're very unique. A lot of nuances and whatnot could happen in the representations and warranties. What are you seeing trend-wise recently?
0: Um, what we're seeing more of is less and less, if any, reps and warranties from sellers. They're basically relying or telling the buyer to rely on their due diligence. We're not going to give you reps and warranties or what on what are called non-fundamental reps. Fundamental reps, yes, they have to represent, for example, if I'm selling stock, I own the stock. I haven't sold it to you. I haven't issued you a warrant or an option to buy that stock. Those are fundamental reps which clearly the seller has to make and a buyer wants to know. But other things such as there's no litigation. Well, you can run searches to find out if there's litigation against the seller or if there are claims and things like that. So really putting more of the onus and the risk shifting onto the buyer.
1: Do you see that primarily as because it's more of a seller's market? There's so much money chasing business deals, or why do you think the change is that the seller is not happen to rep those out?
0: It could be. It's almost similar to the real estate market today, the residential real estate market. Um, people are buying houses as is. Mm-hmm. There's no representations. There's no... Um, no financing or any contingencies, and people are paying twenty to forty thousand dollars over list just taking a house. They'll do the inspection, but they won't um, be able to come back after the seller if there's a breach or if they find something later on.
1: I like that uh, description in terms of you know the fundamental rep would be the inspection is the house sturdy, but all the right. other reps, you know, the non-fundamental reps are just all the other things that may or may not happen to the house and you just don't care, You're, you want the house.
0: Right, and uh, from a contract standpoint, one of the things that's important about whether it's a fundamental or non-fundamental rep is the indemnification. Um, both the survival period of that rep and how long can the seller or the buyer come back after the seller if there's a breach of that rep or warranty. Uh, usually fundamentals have longer survival periods, uh, sometimes, infinite but i try to put it up to the greater of a set period like two years or the applicable statute of limitations okay and those for fundamental for non-fundamental i can go as low as six months or no survival at all it just dies at the time the contracts or the transactions consummated
1: so do you see that the fact that there's no reps and warranties or the sellers are making fewer and fewer representations and warranties Does that cause the diligence phase to elongate, or are you seeing deals take longer, or is it just...
0: No, it's the same. Um, Usually you get 30, 60 days, what we do for a due diligence period, which is more than enough time to run your searches and uh, kick the tires, interview management of the selling entity. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Also what we see with the reps and warranties are what we call knowledge qualifiers. I do have a matter that I'm working on now. The the gentleman who's one of the sellers has not been active in the business for years. How do they know what's going on in that business? Now, I know you're supposed to know, but this individual has been ill, has not been able to be active. They're selling the business. What kind of reps can he make? He can only make to the best of his knowledge. If he doesn't know something, he doesn't know it and um, a lot of negotiations go on as to what even constitutes knowledge is it your actual knowledge do you have to know of something if you're the president are you supposed to know are you supposed to do some due diligence on your own to make that representation so that's another negotiated point with a lot of the reps and the warranties
1: so what in terms of knowledge when you talk about situations like that if are there are there requirements that the seller could be held to because he's in a position where he's supposed to know
0: that's negotiated. It's all in the definition of knowledge. Okay. As a seller, I am going to say actual knowledge and we've received no notice that we're not telling you the truth. If I'm a buyer, I'm going to say, well, you're the president you're supposed to know. So it depends what hat I'm wearing. So at that point, it's really what kind of risk tolerance each of the parties has, you know, what are they willing to take?
1: Yeah, and again, you know, all the, these representations and warranties, it's just coming to the agreement on the risk. Who's going to carry what risk, when,
0: and how long? Right? Absolutely, yeah. and, I, and I asked my, my clients that. I said, look, before we mess around with this, is there anything I, I need to know that you're concerned about? No, we run a clean house, blah, blah, blah. I said, fine. Then we can be a little more liberal with our giving of a rep and a warranty.
1: One uh, topic I know you had uh, when we were talking beforehand, that is a new, new to me, is the anti-sandbagging provisions. Oh,
0: okay. Well, again, this goes back with the, um, the due diligence. For example, if I'm selling my business to you and I make a representation that there's no litigation and you do your due diligence and find out there is litigation, you go, aha, I gotcha. So we close, and two minutes after closing, you say, you owe me $50,000 because you're being sued. No, you, you should be held to what you know. So you can't kind of box me in that way. Gotcha. I, I, it's just fair. Yeah. It's just fair. If you know of something, you can't come back after me for it.
1: Kind of negotiating in good faith, right? If I know something, I need to bring it to the table.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Say it now because, hey, if there is an issue... And, and for some reason we left it off a schedule usually those things are scheduled litigation and those types of things we set them out on a schedule if something's not scheduled we left it off an innocent mistake not fraud fraud is a totally different matter but it's an innocent mistake
1: mm-hmm. gotcha how about uh, survival periods are you seeing any trends there where they're changing much or is it
0: same with the reps and the warranty I, you know whether it's they'll give them or not um Usually, as I said before, with um, fundamental reps, we're willing to give longer survival periods, um, statutory for taxes, for example, that you know there's a period of time in which the IRS can come back after you. After that period, they can't. So you don't want to extend that rep beyond that period. But I, I don't think I've seen anything other than in the global rep and warranty arena um, where they're giving less, the survival periods haven't changed.
1: Okay. When it comes to um, understanding the representations and warranties and essentially who's holding what risk, you know, obviously I could self-insure, but are mm. there risks or could I go out to the private market public market and actually get insurance on reps and warranties? Are you seeing any change in that industry?
0: Well, yes. Uh, The past five years, there's been a lot of movement um, and more products of representation and warranty experience. It used to be, or insurance, it used to be only um, for larger deals because it was somewhat cost prohibitive. The insurer is not going to insure up to the purchase price. It's rare you see that. Um, Typical, and I've got some documents here, that some literature that Uh, supports this usually there's a 10 25 percent limit so if there's a 10 million dollar deal you'll get rep and warranty insurance for a million it's expensive it's usually three percent around three percent of the deal but there's also a deductible so if you've got a in my my uh, example of a 10 million dollar deal and a million dollar rep and warranty insurance there may be 250 thousand dollar deductible and then you're still paying $30,000 for the insurance. It's expensive. And then who pays for it? Um, that's another negotiation, whether the buyer should pay for it or the seller. In a seller's market, the buyer's going to pick it up more often because they want to get the deal done.
1: Do you see that happening now?
0: Um, I've still only seen it in larger deals. Um, I, I I did a deal that was over $100 million a couple years ago, and... And there was rep and warranty insurance, but for smaller deals, and I don't mean to diminish money because I, you know, I don't have $25 million sitting in my uh, bank, but, um, you know, a $25 million deal, it may be cost prohibitive.
1: What type of things are they insuring against? Because it's not blanket reps and warranties. I'm no, sure they, there's not enough risk out there where they want to pay They the do price. their due
0: diligence. You know, first of all, they're going to charge you thirty dollars to $45,000 due diligence fee on top of the premium and with the deductible. Um, usually the non-fundamental reps, although you can get fundamental rep insurance, it's just more expensive. So, again, like any insurance product, the insurer is going to do their due diligence, their underwriting to make sure you know they're not in the business of paying out claims.
1: When you look across kind of the, the deals that you've done, whether it's um, – Closely held business, buying out other closely held business, or more professional, like private equity um, roll-up type situations, do you see a difference in the reps and warranties between those two, or or some just more sophisticated, so to speak, because they're professional... M&A people?
0: Well, a lot of the P.E. stuff, um, they're going to want some strict reps and warranties if they're buying. When they're selling, they almost give no reps and warranties because the private equity people aren't running the business, like I was saying before. It's to their knowledge is Mm -hmm. the best you're going to get. But the P.E. people are going to probably look at larger deals or um, strategic buys. Much more of a
1: financial, just looking at the Blocking and tackling, so to speak. Yep. Yep. How about, um, you know, you talked about representations and warranties and indemnifications. maybe share a little bit about what you're seeing on the indemnification provisions.
0: Um, And that's where the rep and warranty insurance comes in. It kind of takes the place. Nothing upsets a seller more. And I know I'm talking more about the sell side, but nothing um, upsets a seller more than having to dig into their pocket for money they receive from a transaction a year later. I, that's the one of the worst calls I can get is, hey, Keith, they won $100,000 from me. Well, so what we build in are what are called baskets and caps. The basket is kind of a threshold. Um, it can be a negotiated amount. It could be a percentage of the deal. That up until that point, let's say $100,000 is the basket. If the buyer has claims against the seller, whether it be for rep and a breach of a rep and a warranty, failure to perform a covenant, um, until it hits, hits that threshold, the buyer eats it. So that's where the insurance might come in. Um, the uh, two different types of baskets, one's called a tipping basket, one's a non-tipping, I said that $100,000 limit. A lot of times, is once it gets to that 100000 it goes back to zero. So if there are claims for $101,000 and the basket was 100 the sellers responsible for 101,000. That's a tipping basket. A non-tipping basket is where the um, it's a deductible. So again, $101,000 of claims, $100,000 basket. The seller's responsible only for thousand or the excess over that. So that's the first piece. And then you have the cap. How much are you going to um, be responsible for? usually with fundamental reps it's the purchase price or I shouldn't say usually I've seen it typically be the purchase price uh, for non-fundamentals it's a lower cap because again you could find that stuff out you can do your due diligence it all goes to the risk risk shifting which you mentioned at the beginning
1: do you see the the negotiation around those baskets or these indemnification provisions? Relating to the fact that there are no reps and warranties in a lot of seller cases. That yes, yes. So a higher basket, if you're not giving any reps and warranties, you might have to agree to a higher basket, so to speak.
0: Uh, or actually a lower basket. Or a lower basket. You, yeah. on a lower basket because the, the buyer saying, okay, I'm not going to take reps and warranties, but those that I have, I want to make sure that I'm not stuck uh, re- being required to fund those out of my pocket. Yeah, it's the interplay is probably the most contentious part, and probably as I said, takes about 80% of the time and the costs that we build through to the client, dealing with the reps and the warranties. Um, one of my partners uh, had a two and a half million dollar deal, which is a nice sized deal. 40 pages of reps and warranties from the buyer, the buyer, because the buyer usually prepares the contract. That's insane. What type of business? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I just know he comes in complaining all the time about this 40-page, and he actually tried to qualify it, and the buyer's counsel came back and says, "Hey, if you don't accept it, we're walking." So again, at that point, sometimes our clients say, "Just give them what they want."
1: Right. The emotion of getting the deal done because I want the check.
0: Exactly, and we're saying okay, but you're going to get a memo from us saying we told you that this can happen. So a year later, when they call us, you don't want to say I told you. So obviously, we represent the client. We want to do our best for them, but you know, we just want to make sure that they understand that they're they're assuming that risk.
1: Yeah, I know for uh, for MBBI and you know focusing on transactions and mergers and acquisitions, um, and really working toward. educating business owners, where do you see, or maybe you have examples of situations where the reps and warranties or how these different pieces of the document can interplay to really assuage kind of that, you know, the emotional tie that you just mentioned of just get the deal done. Because at so many times when, you know, business owners are looking to, to transact, and I've seen this, I'm sure you have as well, I want it to be done right. I want it to be done right. I want to protect myself, et cetera. And then there's you know deal fatigue.
0: I just want it done. All the time. All the time. It, it, well, it depends how motivated each party is. How badly does the seller want to sell? You know, I, I've done deals and I'm in one now where the, the seller said, you know what? I don't need to sell. It's a nice time to sell. I'm getting a decent price, but I don't need to. Well, in that case, we're going to hold hold to our guns more. If it's I have to retire, my wife wants to move to Tahiti, I got to get out of here. Just get it done.
1: Yeah, you end up. It's going back to just basic negotiation. Who has the leverage, right? Right. Yeah,
0: and and, and the buyer, if it's a strategic buy, they may be more interested. If you're in a in a, a typical niche industry where there aren't many other opportunities a buyer is much going to much more likely to want to buy an ongoing business than to start it up themselves they've got a track record with with the other businesses so um yeah and that all goes hand in hand and then you get into other things such as whether the seller is going to take back do some seller financing and take back paper, and then that also goes in with the reps and the warranties because if there's a breach. Rather than coming after you, they can go after say, "Hey, I owe you a million dollars, but there's a twenty thousand dollar breach. I now owe you nine hundred and eighty thousand dollars." So those are all. It's all mixed together.
1: Well, I guess it makes more t- more sense to to spend the time up front because you don't want to be caught chasing the money or fighting for the money back, as opposed to just looking into a document and knowing what you're what you're supposed to be. From your mouth yeah. to
0: yeah absolutely <laughs> it's yeah it's the old mr Goodwrench: pay me now or pay me later and right. if you pay me later it's going to be a lot more
1: yeah, yeah that's right yep well thank you very much for sharing your insights and uh, thanks to keller her and holland for hosting us today thanks to ray our wonderful sound tech who's making us all sound good yeah uh, this is jeff cesmasi with chartist group signing off for mbbi thank you and enjoy the day